You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. Welcome along to a brand new episode of the Straight to Video Podcast. Hope you're all doing great and how was your Halloween? Things went on the scale we usually have at our house, but it was fun nonetheless. And I've got a chance to catch up on some recent horror movies, such as Halloween Ends, which whilst most people seem to hate it, I thought it was really good. And I also checked out Terrifier 2, which was the utmost gore fest as expected. I also dropped a horror-themed bonus episode of this podcast over on the Straight to Video Patreon. If anyone wants to check that out with myself and good buddy Vincent Watts chatting all about A Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master, which was really fun to do. On this show, though, today I get to bring you a talk with a true legend of the 1980s hard rock scene, but not one of the musicians on stage. This fellow was behind the camera lens, capturing some of the most iconic images of all the bands I loved, from Poison, Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, Motley Crue, pretty much every band of the time, either on their album covers, promo photos, or just some amazing fly-on-the-wall images. For someone like myself who scoured the credits on album sleeves and in magazines, the name of today's guest, Mark Weiss, would become as recognisable as the musicians themselves. Now, Mark recently released an incredible coffee table book called The Decade That Rocked, which showcases a lot of his legendary photo shoots and some never-before-seen shots. The book is pretty essential if you're a fan of the genre, and you can pick it up from all good book retailers. Or for more information, check out thedecadethatrocked.com. Hot on the heels of this book, Mark is also set to release a brand new one focusing on the late Kevin DeBro of Quiet Riot, which we talk about in this episode, along with many other stories from Mark's career, which is still going strong to this day and now includes photo workshops, which sees him passing on his knowledge onto younger generations. On a slight side note, Mark actually came out to a show our old band Teenage Casket Company did in New York back in 2006. We were playing on the same bill as the erotic Stevie Rochelle of Tough and Veins of Jenna, and this was around the time I believe Mark was relaunching Rock Scene magazine, which we discuss in this episode, and he actually ended up taking some shots of my friend and guitarist at the time, Jamie Dalleric, lying in the garbage cans of New York. I'd love to see the results, but these shots have never seen the light of day, but we can keep our fingers crossed that Mark digs them out sometime down the line. This episode of the Straight to Video podcast is proudly presented to you in association with Affinity Photo, which is an incredible piece of photo editing software which I've been using for the past couple of years. I was turned on to them by my buddy Daz, who creates the wonderful episode artwork you see each week for this show. And Affinity is an amazing and extremely affordable alternative to other programs on the market. Plus, they're actually based in Nottingham here in the UK, so right on my doorstep. Now is a great time to get on board with Affinity Photo and also Affinity Designer and Publisher as they have some great announcements on the way. So please check them out at affinity.serif.com or click the link in the episode description. Right now, though, let's dive into my straight-to-video chat with legendary rock photographer Mark Weiss. Okay. How's it going? Good. 
Good to see you, man. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks ever so much, Mark, for doing this for us. I'm stoked we got it all hooked up. Yeah. When we were looking at getting something into the diary for this chat, you were getting set to head to the Monsters on the Mountain Festival. How was that? Oh, it was so cool, man. You know, I was a little nervous in the beginning because, you know, whenever I do a big project, especially something that I've never really done before, which is this photo workshop, it's like I always get cold feet. I'm like, oh, should I, you know, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? And then once, you know, you hop in the car and you pack everything up, you're committed and then you just kind of just make the best of it. And and it worked out pretty cool because it was like, I just started getting into this TikTok I had an intern, this guy named Zach. So he was meeting me there and there's a whole storyline. So it kind of made it fun documenting. It was like almost like a mini documentary. So if you do go to, you know, Mark Weiss guy at TikTok, you'll see how I met Zach a year ago and how he's interning. And then we have these other photographers doing these photo shoots with, you know, Vixen and Kicks and all these bands, Queensryche, you know, and they're shooting them too. So it's every little two or three minute clip is something funny and cute and, you know, and it's just entertaining. And I really enjoyed the process. I never really, you know, I have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and I kind of have, you know, I put up birthdays and things like that, but I never really made it a personal thing. I felt like, you know, I just didn't do it. So this new thing, TikTok, they say it's mostly for younger people, which is probably true, but it's definitely building momentum for us older folk. And uh, I kind of like going into a new audience that don't really know me. Exactly. You could capture somebody who like totally didn't know nothing about the scene you're from or anything like yeah. that, but you grab them in a totally different way. So that's awesome. Doing these workshops and stuff, you wasn't sure if you could do it. Do you ever get like imposter syndrome when it is something you obviously can do, but going into it for the first time? Pretty much every photo shoot I do, I get that. I didn't know there's a name for it. I call it just getting nervous, you know? But yeah, I mean, I guess that's... Yeah, even if it doesn't have to be like big band or anything, it could be even a small band. It's like, am I going to be able to pull this off? Are they going to like the photos? So I still feel that way. And and I just go into each photo shoot kind of like that. And then at the end, after I get to know them, if it's someone new that I'm working with, it just develops into something that's usually pretty successful for both of us. Yeah. For someone getting into photography today, much like music, it's a whole different playing field to how it was for you in the late 70s. And I know you speak about it in your book, The Decade That Rock, but just for listeners, I'd like to touch on your introductions if we can a little bit. It's a great story because you're an East Coast guy growing up in, is it Matawan, New Jersey? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Matawan. Yeah. What was the contrast there compared to say Manhattan, which is just a little further north? Is it like two polar opposites? It was always like the suburbs and New York City, you know, that's that's the two things, you know, it's like, and, uh, you know, New York was always me growing up as a preteen. I just looked at his, you know, I used to go in there and visit some relatives and my parents. It just looked like a big, scary place that you don't want to go to, you know. Is this like 70s New York? Yeah, 70s. The New York you imagine and see in films and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, you know, you go in there, then there's the... Uh, the prostitutes and then there's the uh you know the homeless guys so that's my vision of new york yeah because he used to have going through the tunnel and then we used to just go to our relatives and you know have a meal there and then go back home so i was kind of a little intimidated by new york until i started going to concerts and then the concerts were at you know madison square garden at the palladium i used to just hop on the train in matawan about 50 minutes later i'd be in new york city and i just be right there. It's just right there. And we used to call it the party train. And that's when I used to, you know, just go in there, sneak in my camera, take pictures the first night, like at 
Peter Frampton or Kiss or one of the bands that played multiple nights and then sell them the next day out of my high school locker and uh, in front of the concerts. Was photography something you'd ever considered prior to that? Because it was only through becoming a teenager, earning money, mowing lawns and approached a potential new client about mowing his lawn, but rather than paying up front, he offered you a camera instead. So what was you thinking at that time? He was like thinking, this this guy's a cheapskate. Or <laughs> what was you thinking? No, I, I actually thought the camera was worth more than it was. Okay. Because I was only getting $5 a cut. You know, I was going to mow his lawn for like maybe 10 times. So that's like, you know, 50 bucks, really. So I'm thinking this camera, I could hock it for like 200 bucks. So that, that was my plan to like go to the hock shop and get a couple hundred bucks for it. What stopped you though? Uh, I just kind of looked at the camera and it kind of looked cool and I felt it. And once I felt it and kind of started playing around with it, I just said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to hold on to it. Like taking pictures of my brother and my dog and those kind of things, just, you know, developing the film and then getting excited. But then it really took off when, you know, I kind of put it down after I took enough pictures of my brother and my dog. And then I started getting involved in music. And then that's when, you know, it kind of clicked. Your brother, he played in bands as well, though, right? Did you ever, like, photograph any of his shows or eventually take any band photos for him? I was only, like, 13, 14. I didn't think about taking my camera that I just got to photograph him. It was across the street, just be like a garage band. And that's really was my introduction. Uh, I wish I did take pictures of him. Did you ever want to play in a band yourself? I gave it a try, you know. Uh, when I was 14, I, me and my friends got together and we tried to do it. And everyone was, like, talented except for me. I didn't, I just couldn't remember how to, you know play chords and I tried to sing and it's like awful and I have a voice so it didn't work out you know no. it was a short-lived thing but we had some fun you began smuggling your camera into early shows was you still using that same camera you got from mowing the lawn yeah 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 that first camera was up until I shot Aerosmith at Giant Stadium and got my first picture in circus do you still have that camera yeah it's hanging around I have a mannequin back there that I display when I do little shows of me like you know I have like all my old clothes on them and stuff and I have the camera dangling around his neck. The guy who gave it to you for mowing the lawns, did he ever realize you was that guy who went on to photograph all those bands, do you think? No. I tried to reach out, passed by the house, knocked on the door. They weren't living there. And no, I never really got a chance. I wonder if I ever found out. That'd be awesome. I know. You learned a very valuable lesson earlier on. I think one of your first shows was Elton John, but you'd used up all your film. And later in the set, John Lennon came out on stage, so you couldn't get any shots of him. Are there any other valuable lessons you've learned since then? Yeah, in, in 81, when I, I was shooting, starting to shoot Ozzy, I started developing a relationship. I wanted to do a photo shoot. And they were just playing the Palladium and Sharon and said, you know, come by at like 10 in the morning and uh, we'll do a photo shoot. I didn't know that everyone was staying up all night. I just thought they were just getting up and everything. And I was going through the tunnel and there was an accident in the tunnel. And so there was like, it was all backed up. And there, this is before cell phones or anything like that. So I got there about a half hour late. When I knocked on the door, they said, uh, sorry, the band, you know, they were kind of pissed that I wasn't there on time. And then they, we didn't do that photo shoot. That was with Randy Rhodes too. It would have been with Randy. So I was kind of bummed that that happened now. Whether they were really waited for me or they, you know, whether I, it was because I was late, I'll never know, you know, but I was late. And, they, and that was the reason they gave me for not doing the shoot at that mm -hmm. time. So that was my last time I was ever late for anything, you know. Just punctuality. Yeah, you got to be there when they say you're going to be there, you know, and you have to, you got to give yourself time for things like accidents and things like that, you know. But there must have been millions of times where you were left hanging around for bands to get their shit together. Yeah, I'm a second uh, citizen, you know what I mean? Like, I choose to do 
what I do. And, you know, they're the rock stars. I'm the photographer. And you got to cater. You know, you got to be there when they, they want to be there. So smuggling your camera into shows, how would you get close enough to the front? Because you wouldn't have photo passes back then when you was not doing it for magazines. Was it a matter of when the lights went down, try and rush to the front? Yeah, pretty much. What I would do is I wouldn't even have a ticket to get in. I would literally pay the guard a few dollars to get in, like pretend I have a ticket stub and then I would kind of like pass it to him. And then I would go in, I have my cameras kind of like hidden in my, you know, under my shirt and my jacket in my fry boots. I would put my lens, dismantle them. And then once I get in, I tried, I have all these old ticket stubs. So I would flash it to try to get in the orchestra. There are different colors. So at the end of each show, you try to get all these ticket stubs from that show that people don't even care about. I mean, now they wish they had them all because they're really cool looking. But I collected them and I used them for the next show and I would, you know, use them to get in. Now, if that didn't work, I would wait till the lights go down in between the bands and then I would jump over the barricade and then head myself to the first kind of 10 rows. And then when everyone was standing up, I would dismantle the the seats and move them so I'd have a spot and it would close up the aisle so the security guard can't get down anymore. So I, And then I had this nice little spot for the whole show. So the people with photo passes, they just had three songs. Right. But you figured yeah, out exactly. <laughs> you got the <Yeah>. whole set. <laughs> nice one. You began taking photos one night, then selling them like the following night. Was you ever like intimidated standing outside gigs with like the bootleg shirt guys or was you always confident? doing that no it was fun i mean you know i, I knew you weren't supposed to do it because you used to run when the cops came like with all the shirt sellers and then thankfully i did get arrested because i went into the paddy wagon with the shirt sellers and went to jail overnight the next day i went to circus magazine and brought my material in because i was like what am i gonna do now that was kind of like a wake-up call for you like if i want to do this i've got to try and yeah. do it properly Yep. So and then it was just good timing. I met the secretary, took a liking to me and she said, hang out. I'll introduce you to the art director. He's in a good mood. He's off deadline, but just hang out. So I hung out for like three hours, finally met him, showed him my work. I was only 17. He told me, you know, use this film. We like to shoot with Kodachrome. This is what we're looking for. And, you know, just had a good little pep talk with me. And I came back when Aerosmith was playing with Ted Nugent and I happened to have some photos and they needed photos and I left them there. And a couple months later, the first photo was a centerfold of Steven Tyler. How is that seeing that? Did you know that some of your work would have been in that issue? She said, go check out the issue. Beatles were on the cover and I just kept flipping the pages slowly and just waiting and waiting. You thought about a little corner photograph or something like that. Yeah. And it was the biggest picture in the book, in the magazine. Wow. How many copies of that did you buy to show everybody? Oh, yeah, I got a bunch. I got them hanging right in my office right now. Is that when things just snowballed from there? Because, I mean, you went on to do things backstage with Van Halen. Did you find right from the start you had a good rapport with the bands? I guess you'd all be similar ages into similar things. Yeah, that was it. We were kind of cut from the same cloth because we all liked Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith and Ted Nugent, all those bands that I liked, you know, the Sweet and even like Rod Stewart. You know, they all kind of liked that glam rock. That's what most of those bands kind of came from. And so I liked that music. They liked the music. I liked what they were doing, coming up with. And I liked the imagery. It was just a natural for both of us to be comfortable with each other. Did you get much hang time or did it vary from band to band to gain that rapport? Or did they just like the way you handled yourself during the photographs? You know, if you want to hang out with someone once you meet them, whether it's a friend or someone, even someone cutting your hair, you know, it's like, you know, if you want to come back to them. So 
I'm me and they're them. And we kind of clicked. It's like, you know, it was just another friend. I always look at like every time I do, you know, another shoot is four or five new potential friends. And most of them end up being friends for, for life, really, you know. So I didn't have a lot of friends in high school, a lot of acquaintances, but not a lot of people that I could you know hang out with. And, you know, you have your handful, but there were like so many bands and so many friends to be made. I just love doing it. And just, I just like being around all this stuff. I was a, you know, I was a fan. Did you get, ever get intimidated at all? No, not really. I'm not intimidated, but always nervous a little bit. Meeting so many different bands, it must have been so different from band to band. Some was instant, some needed breaking down before you could gain their trust. I guess some wouldn't be interested at all. There must have been some really tough ones. Yeah, the only real tough one I had was Danzig. And I mentioned that in the book. They weren't to take photos and I went and touched Glenn and he didn't like me touching him. And I talk about it in the book, but uh, that's like the only experience I had where it wasn't enjoyable. Did you ever like see yourself heading down a specific route? Because your famous photos, they aren't just say live photos. You're as well known for your portrait and band shots along with candid photos. And also later on some well famous iconic album covers like the Twisted Sister and Bon Jovi. Do you or did you ever have a preference to which you enjoyed? I probably enjoyed just being a fly the wall because it's least effort but the most gratifying is an album cover because you just know you're creating something that's going to be around you know even like those album covers you mentioned they're going to be around in some sort of you know went from albums to cassettes to dvds to cds and now it's just digital streaming now you, you still see them like when you put on serious radio and they're you know a song by cinderella or docking and the album cover pops up and it looks pretty cool, small, you know, on the screen. Does it bring all the memories rushing back all the time? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I love it. What's a bigger buzz, seeing your stuff in a magazine or when you go to a record shop? If we're talking like Bon Jovi and Twisted Sister, those were massive albums. So there must have been times when it was just a whole wall of those albums. Yeah, yeah. They would have point of purchase displayed and posters and ads and billboard magazine. And, you know, there was, I'd always want my credit in there. I'd make sure that it gets in there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I was just over in Israel with my girlfriend, went into this record shop that this one guy bought my book in Israel and it cost like 80 bucks to ship there. So we were in Tel Aviv and I went into this shop. It's called The Metal Shop. I went in there, kind of did a little TikTok thing. I'm going to post later on. And I kind of went in there and just, we walked on the streets and I'm going to say, let's, let's go check out this guy and see if he's got the book in the store. And he had it on the shelf and we interviewed him and it was pretty cool talking about rock and roll and heavy metal in Israel. And then we did a little thing. I said, cause he, he sold vinyl too. And I said, uh, I wonder if they have my Twisted Sister cover, my first cover I ever did. And it was there. So we did a little thing on that. We talked about that. So, uh, you know, 40 years later, 30, 40 years, is it? Yeah, 40 years, I guess. Isn't it? Yeah. When was the first time you got to head out on tour with a band? Do you remember that call where you're going to come out with us for a week, two weeks or whatever? Probably. I'm trying to think. It might have been early 80s, of course, but like Rad and Motley Crue and Ozzy. It all kind of happened at once. And I would go a week on with this band and then another week on that one and back home. And then I would process the film and send it to the magazines. Then I'd go out again and someone's doing a video. So it was just 
for those 10 years, it was just like nonstop. Would you be joining sometimes mid-tour as well? So was that ever awkward once a band's like gelled on their bus and this outsider comes in? I guess you might, you knew them already, but was that sometimes weird to join that dynamic? No, I would just be whenever it was convenient for what I was doing. And if, if they actually had a new single out or a video, of course, if they have an album out, the beginning is always good to get the beginning of the tour, but it didn't really matter. And they wanted to be in the magazines. So usually it's beginning of the tour. And then I would just go for fun and take some photos throughout. Each time I went out there, there would be more photos to get in the magazines. Plus, it breaks up the monotony of their four guys or five guys of just hanging out. Now you have another buddy to hang out with. So I would, you know, and I would be on the tour bus with them hanging out and partying and all that. Some of these bands you saw right from the start. I mean, you saw Motley Crue at the Us Festival, followed them right through their career. Do you think at the time, like, this is like iconic or is it just cool to see what have initially become your friends getting all this success? That must be awesome. Well, with Motley Crue, the first time I shot them, it was 1982, actually, a year before the Us festival it was for we magazine shooting them with half naked women of course you're going to be immediately good friends with those guys vice versa (laughs) so yeah it's always great to see them progress and get bigger and bigger and me getting them in the magazines and them being so excited the first time they see them in those certain magazines you know then you see them having their little issues and their problems and Things happen just like in life, things happen. Basically just seeing these guys just grow up in front of you and you're there lucky enough to document the whole thing. Only until I really put this book together, how I could really see how much I was involved in helping create the imagery of them and how they kind of like went from tour to tour and how clothes changed and fashion changed a little bit, even for rock and metal. Changed so fast. Motley Crue is always that example I go to with how different time is these days. Like nowadays, 10 years can go by in a blink of an eye. But your book's focused on the 80s and you can just see so many different elements of just one band for like Motley Crue, for example. I mean, they had their album Decade of Decadence and just so many different transitions within that 10-year period. It's just not like that anymore. Those 10 years can just be gone like that and just one album comes out. But just within that time period, so much happened and you got to capture it all as well which is amazing yeah it was fun stuff we mentioned the us festival you also did live aid and the moscow music peace festival again it's like at the time are you just there to do a job or is it like wow i am definitely capturing something special here i think even every show i think it's something special but especially those shows those you know are going to be historic even like hearing aid with dio and all the cast of characters on there and farm aid with some of the country artists bon jovi i went with before they were you know this is only when the Fahrenheit album was out. You want to be around and you don't know at the time that what it's going to mean. You know, you could always refer to Woodstock is my only thing I can compare those things to. Not that it compares to Woodstock, the original, because nothing can compare to that. But, you know, there were kind of like those offshoots of that. And there was a lot of them. Not too many in the 70s. It just seemed like the 80s really uh, kicked in on everything, you know, because of MTV and the popularity. I think that's why this decade that the rock and metal of the 80s has lasted so longer and has a resurgence. And the kids are loving it too. Like on TikTok, they're going, I missed my generation. But, you know, they can embrace it and create and find new bands that are like that. But it will never be like that again. I am glad and fortunate that I was able to document it. I mean, out of all the decades that you can be a photographer, I think the 80s would be the one to do it. 100%, man. I mean, I also shot bands like, you know, The Cure and 
the Go-Go's and I would do whoever I have access to. Devo, I just, you know, so it was a flamboyant decade. You know, I was into the rock and metal, obviously. That's why I have my book dedicated to that. But, you know, I'll be putting out books with my other material. I also shot celebrities too, like for entertainment magazines like Us and some German magazines called Bravo that got me access to certain bands. Like I shot Drew Barrymore when she was in E.T. and Kim Bassinger and Alec Baldwin and Johnny Depp when he was in 21 Jump Street. I did a photo shoot with them and Beverly Hills cast. I did a couple shoots with them. So I did a lot of a lot of different things that haven't even been exposed yet. The next decade, I did a lot of stuff like within Sync and Backstreet Boys and Christina Aguilera. So that's not even out yet. No one even knows about that stuff yet, but that will come out. Speaking of movies, in your book, there's a photo of Dokken with Freddy Krueger from the Dream Warriors shoot. Do you recall much about working with Robert Englund, who played Freddy? He was just a nice guy, just, you know, all dressed up in his outfit, you know, with a smile under it, in character when he needed to be. And when he wasn't, he was just hanging out. You know, it was the Dream Warrior movie and Dokken did the soundtrack. So it was cool. How much interaction would you have with like, other famous photographers at the time, such like Ross Alfin and Niels Lozauer, was there like a healthy competition for you guys? I guess you would call it healthy because it kind of kept us on our toes. You know, back then it's like in the beginning, you know, with the first hello, it was a hello. But once we all saw everyone's like, you know, it's almost like, all right, I want to do that shoot, you know, or I want to do that album cover. So it was a healthy competition for sure. I don't know if they feel that way. I was the youngest one out of the bunch. They were all good. Everyone's a little different. You know, Neil from the West Coast, he's a little more, you know, partier and really in your face. And Ross is uh, from England and he's very, uh, you know, demanding and either love him or hate him. And just like with everyone, everyone's got their own personality and the bands worked with all of us. You know, we were the three that really they worked with extensively. And then there was probably 50 others that if you would ask the bands who they are, they probably wouldn't even know. But I feel like every decade of rock photographers, like the 70s had like Mick Rockland, Goldsmith, Bob Ruin. And then there was in the 60s was Henry Diltz, Jim Marshall. There's always three, I feel. I mean, there's more, but three that come to mind. Were they the guys you looked up to as well? Like Mick Rock and all those guys? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I looked at all those three and I became very friendly with Lynn still to this day. And she kind of, you know, gave me some advice. She still does, you know, and she's proud of me and, you know, sees what I'm doing and, and we talk or, you know, so it's, it's interesting. And Bob's a great guy, Bob Gruen. Nick had a couple conversations, not a lot, but everyone is very different out of those three that I mentioned. One thing you mentioned to me when we were going back and forth on emails was the 30 year old archive you have in your garage. How often have you like dived into that over the years or have you just been adding to it? throughout your career and then when you came to do this book you're like holy shit I gotta go through all of this I've always knew where it was and before the book I would get calls from different magazines that would want some archives I'd always go in there grab stuff and scan them but definitely when the book came out I had to really dive in deep and really figure it out is this still some stuff which is still in like old photo style pre-digital that you need to get to and archive it properly yeah there's slides up until I think about 2005 everything's in slide form and I have a three car garage and everything's in there and I have some inside in my office upstairs and it's uh, pretty intense. And when I need something specific, Ozzy's doing some documentary stuff right now and they 
want material, I have to, most of it's scanned and sometimes I have to dig deeper and then scan it. But I have someone doing that, you know, full time. There's not only your book, The Decade That Rocked, that people should check out, but you also have a big involvement with Roxy Magazine, which is a magazine you're a fan of in the 70s. But you've like helped archive and resurrect it more recently online. Could you tell us a little about that and what inspired that? Yeah, it's just a magazine that I always loved when I was a teenager. I used to, my brother used to have a subscription and I acquired the trademark and I archived all the, the magazines, but I, you know, I wanted a place to put my photographs. So I pretty much created this website so I can put it somewhere and, and share it with people and uh, get some new bands in there. So yeah, it's just a hub for cool rock photos. And uh, if you want to look at the old magazines, they're up there too. Rock scene uh, has some great old articles from the 70s. It was a short, it was like a 10 year span. I think there was a total of 52 issues. And then in the 80s, I think it was sold to a company where they changed the logo and turned out to be just like an 80s, kind of like a circus or hit parade or whatnot. Since your involvement, that's expanding to like some really cool YouTube interviews with bands from the 80s and stuff, talking about how they grew up and how they got into the scene prior to them exploding on a global scale. You know, I wanted a place to to do these interviews because I love shooting the shows. And at this point, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there really wasn't a lot of rock magazines and I still love doing all that. So I would just go early and do some photos at Soundcheck and then it's like, all right, what am I going to do for a couple hours? So then I just pretty much said, let me start doing some interviews and I'll post it on my rock scene site. So I have over a hundred interviews and, you know, millions of views on it that just circulate. And, you know, it's like a 10, 15 minute interview of them talking about kind of their humble beginnings when they started going up until they kind of hit fame. Sometimes I go a little further with it, but sometimes I usually, you know, until they got the first record deal and it just tells their story of, you know, how tenacious they were or how easy it was for them. Outside of your photographs, which are out there for everyone to enjoy forever, you're obviously like a collector of memorabilia and memories outside of the photographs. Is there anything in particular, if you had to grab just a handful of memorabilia to keep outside the photographs, is there anything you'd head for? Well, I have my goal records, obviously. That would probably be the number one. And then I have my tour jackets hanging up on my wall. Bon Jovi, Van Halen, Cinderella, Twisted. Just, you know, all these little things I have, like first portfolio here I have. This is the Twisted Sister manhole behind me. That's the cover of it. Have you always been like an avid collector? Even outside the photographs, you needed to save everything else? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you can see in the book, I saved my bar mitzvah speech. So it was on a little index card and I threw it in the book too. So... Yeah, anything that means something makes me remember. I I had a hard time remembering things and I like things to remember. It helps you remember. I got to ask, because I'm like a big Van Halen fan, and you've obviously photographed Van Halen right from the late 70s. How was it for you seeing that transition between Dave and Sammy coming in? Because I think you had you photographed Sammy when he was in Montrose. Those are my sneaking in days. So that was when I was a teenager when he played at the Garden. But I really just started really shooting Sammy in the early 80s when he was solo. And then I did, you know, the first photo shoots with Van Halen. And then when they did the Monsters of Rock tour, I did the photo sessions on that and did the tour book for them. But I love Sammy, but, you know, David is is like the essential, you know, rock star partier and used to love taking pictures. So they both have really cool dynamics. Love shooting both of them. Did you see like a change in the dynamic of the band when Sammy came in? Just even from like a photographer point of view? Yeah, it was probably, it ended up being more of a equal for when 
Sammy came in. Was Dave the conductor when he was doing it? <laughs> yeah, he was the ham, you know. He always wanted to be in the front. Sammy didn't care, you know. He just was there. He's always just happy to be there. Yeah. Still to this day, you know, it's like he's there for the right reasons. He's there just to play music, make people happy. How often did you get to come to the UK during the 80s? Or do you still get to come over quite a bit? No, not really. I mean, I went over there with Ozzy in 86, I think, when he played Monsters of Rock. All oh, right, you was at Donington. Mm-hmm. I went to Paris when Heather... And Richie got married. I photographed their wedding for them over there. What's in the immediate future for you? Have you got any exhibitions coming up or are you already planning the next books? You mentioned some future books at some point. I want to start doing my books on like individual artists now, you know, so definitely going to be a Motley in the future, an Ozzy, a Bon Jovi, a Guns N' Roses, you know, so I just don't know a Van Halen, but I don't know where or when. But I do have a book that I self-published. This is like a test print copy of Kevin Dubrow. Oh, wow. Very cool. It's called Keep On Rolling. Me and my girlfriend self-published this, Mikkel. It's the story of Missy Whitney, who was the fan club president of Dubrow. And then when they formed Quiet Riot after that, again, you know, before the first Quiet Riot, because of course, in the 70s, it was Quiet Riot with Randy. And then Randy left to go with Ozzy. And then really Quiet Riot turned into Dubrow for a while until he found his musicians and decided to try to go under the name Quiet Riot. And that's where they had mental health. So this is a story that Missy, who was only a teenager when she met Kevin at a concert and a club in California and just fell in love with the whole scene. And she befriended Kevin. These photographs are from Ron Sobel, who was Kevin's best friend and ended up being the lighting guy. These are all like amazing photos. And so, uh, you know, then we have her memoirs and things like that in it. Did Missy approach you or did you approach her? She called me up or sent me an email and she wanted this photo. It was on the cover of Faces magazine. There's a gold chain there and it's a microphone that she got him. He was on solid gold and he wore it on that TV show on his birthday. She gave it to him and she wanted this photo. And uh, I said what's your budget? And she's like, well, it's only for an ebook. Just want it for the cover to represent what the book's going to be about. And I was like, well, send me the manuscript. Let me read it and check it out. And she sent it and I fell in love with it. I said, send me everything you got, you know, like these little notes from Kevin. And then I got Rudy to do the forward. And it just turned into this really cool book. My photos are these from the US Festival. When I started shooting Quiet Riot, my first single sleeve was Bang Your Head. Before Twist the Sister, I did the single sleeve. So there's some history. And then in the 80s, Kevin and I were really good friends. And he let me stay at his house. He gave me keys. He was at my wedding. And so at the back of the book, I tell my little story, you know, my memories of Kevin. And this is me and Kevin at my wedding. Wasn't Kevin in the lineup with Sebastian Buck and Zach Wilde? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> at the wedding, yeah. So yeah, you can watch that too. It's on my YouTube channel. Awesome. And well, Mark, I'm stoked that everything's going so great. It's still as productive as ever. People need to check out The Decade That Rocked. It's an amazing looking book. And also, I want people to dive into the rock scene interviews and all that kind of thing. So lovely to chat with you. You too, Matt. Thanks. Hopefully catch up with you later down the road. All right. Have a good night.
Big thanks to Mark Wise for taking some time from his busy schedule to chat with me here on the Straight to Video podcast. Please be sure to familiarize yourself with his incredible career and the work he's done over at thedecadethatrocks.com or on his social media pages. He truly captured so many iconic images of the time. If you enjoyed this chat and want to listen to over 200 more, then they're all available to stream for free wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can find them along with some straight-to-video music videos and merchandise at stvpod.com. And as mentioned earlier, there's a brand new bonus movie podcast available on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash stvpod. And everyone who is part of that really does help make this podcast continue to run, so thank you so much. And that is all for today's show. Hope you had a good time and I appreciate you listening. So until we do it again, please take care and speak soon. <laughs>